to Stock Talk Podcast, where topics are covered and questions are answered across all parts of the show stock industry. Get ready to learn and laugh with your hosts, Trevor Kirkpatrick and Corey Edge. Another big time guest, Corey Edge, and another person we talked to down in Louisville a couple weeks ago. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Uh, how are you feeling after Thanksgiving? Um, I always over overeat, and I knew dedicated December was coming up, so I figured. So you really overeat? Yeah, I figured. You know, I'm going to change in December, as you know. Everybody's like, "Well, if it's a fitness challenge, and I got to change my life." Well, I thought, you know. I'm just going to eat as much as I possibly can. And I've got some really good cooks in the family. So mm. I just did it. And uh, yeah, full send, full send on the Thanksgiving dinner. I did the same thing. Another cool event. As you know, as you, you know, Corey, but everybody else doesn't know. I uh, was not raised in a hunting household. Nobody in my family had a gun and yeah. I'm not against it. The uh, future in-laws, the future mm-hmm. father-in-law, huge hunter, has a lot of ground. And I had my first hunting experience. Oh, yeah. we will, we will have to uh, dive into that experience. Yes, at some point in time for another for another but time. We'll save it for another episode. Yes, uh, because Trevor, we have got um, we've got a lot to cover here. This is a longer episode. Mm-hmm. Obviously, these longer ones uh, we tend to. We tend to have a little deeper conversation on a few topics, which has definitely happened in this particular episode as well. But uh, before we do that, let's. How's dedicated December going? I mean, we talked about gorging ourselves at, at Thanksgiving. Um, I'm glad we didn't do no nonsense November. Yes, because we could gorge on Thanksgiving, but uh, you know we've got Christmas coming up, and just uh, yeah, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough. First first few days, is it's good. I like the book we're reading. Yes. It's just a little hard. Yeah. I mean, the tracker is nice to kind of know where you're at, but I do like working out. I honestly enjoy working out. It's just getting my butt up and getting there, getting the heart rate up, breaking the sweat. That feels awesome. So it's just, we're at a couple days in, got to keep at it. I am not. Are you a morning, are you a morning workout guy or an afternoon? I'm a morning guy. Um. I got to kind of, that's the way I start. I mean, I read the book in the morning. The dogs get me up around 530, read the book, and decide to go jump in the gym down the road there. Jump so, in the gym. What, and uh, I'm, what's just, your... I'm very motivated to not give $100 to the U of M. So <laughs> that's just not going to happen. Uh, yeah. there's. Uh, I, I cannot probably legally say just for defamation of character reasons who I'm who I would donate my money to. Um, if I fail, but there's a significant reasons why I don't want to fail. So, right. um, yeah. So we, if you want to know, shoot me a DM, I guess. Right. I don't know. Um, well, there's dude, I, I am, I'm not a, I don't know what my favorite workout is in the gym. Mm-hmm. I really think I'm, I'm more of like a elliptical or like bike kind of guy. Yeah. Saves a little the easier on the joints. Yep. A little easier on the joints. Yep. Yep. I'm not well, not one of those bears that can last in a grand drive. I'm just, no. I mean, I'm going to need significant workout in the yard before. Yes. Big I can, time. I can make the big ring. Um, yeah. 
Speaking of uh, the big ring, there's some place that you guys have to go. As you know, Walton Webcasting is the place to be to see the big ring. The uh, Hoosier Classic. Or the little ring. Or the little ring. All the rings. All the rings. Um, but I'm telling you, you guys have to subscribe because I uh, I had a encounter the other day. I got uh, Yorkshire Guilt to had some feet worked on, and oh. I judged the vet's son at the local county fair, and I said, "I'm telling you what, he's like 10 years old, and that's probably the he won the whole show, the whole showmanship show. Oh, good for him!" And I said, "That's probably one of the best." kids i've seen at his age yet alone all year he was like man that means a lot coming from you i said i said you know is he does he work at it i'm sure is he dedicated he's like he is hungry for it in fact he has a subscription to walton webcasting and he watches other ones and how are they winning and what does he need to do to get better well tips from a 10 year old guys buy your subscription from from walton webcasting and get better at what you do and if you're not a showman if you're past that time in life like i am you just got to watch these shows if you can't make it there. This weekend is a Hoosier Classic. Guess what I'm doing oh, this weekend? Hoosier Beef Congress. Hoosier Beef Congress. I'm sorry. Hoosier Beef Congress. And, yeah, I've got to fly down to uh, Georgia. And that's what I'm going to be doing. Probably on the plane, killing time, watching some Walton webcasting. What uh, What airlines do you like? Well, the cheapest. But um, I've heard Delta is good. Mm-hmm. Um but I believe Big comfort plus guy. That's nice. Yeah. So yeah, looking forward to it. Judging in the South. Then I gotta go back down in two weeks to judge in Mississippi. So Jeez. They're just they're keeping you busy down south and east of you. Yes. And I've got uh a big show in Pennsylvania to do at the first part of the year. And then a couple weeks after that, we're headed to the yards in Denver. Oh boy, it's it never stops around here. Nope, nope, never nope. stops. Well, um, should we give the people what they came here for? Sure, but I'm telling you, there's one more people we need to give a shout out to. Well, that's what I'm saying. These people came here to listen to me talk about how awesome Show Cattle Connection is. That's right. That's right. Because Show Cattle Connection is loaded with an experienced team of industry leaders that will help you sell your cattle or get them bought, place them in the right hands. Their easy-to-use website allows customers to navigate to your sale quickly and efficiently. Book a sale with Show Cattle Connection and experience positive results. Folks, I know selling season ain't over. I know you still have some later-born ones that, that maybe just didn't bloom up quite good enough yet. And now they're ready to rock and roll. Let's get them things sold. Mm-hmm. Show Cattle Connection. Love it. Dot com. All right. Well, I say this every time. It's a non-pig episode, but I take notes. I mean, I uh, take advantage of our platform here to uh, use the knowledge that uh, we gain through our guests, no matter who it is. And right. um, boy, Justin Nathan, he has a lot of knowledge, a ton of success. And uh, we're about to hear how he does it. Corey, hit him with it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm a young man that grew up not with a one-eyed blind horse like our (laughs) good buddy, Brad Hook. But he grew up in a state full of corn huskers. That's right. He's from Nebraska. 
a guy that has sold and bought some of the most expensive sheep in the industry, but has turned those things into absolute incredible producers. Folks, an SC online sales rep that is constantly keeping the rubber warm on those vehicles. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring to you Mr. Justin Nathan. So Justin Nathan is with us this time and uh, to talk a little bit of sheep with Nathan Cubland. So Justin, thanks for joining us, man. If you uh, wouldn't mind, just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you're from and what you do. Uh, number one, thank you guys for having me on here. Um, I'm Justin Nathan. I'm from Gene- Geneva, Nebraska. Uh, we, where I own and operate Nathan Club Lambs. Uh, we run about 400 head of sheep right now. Uh, 200 head of them are hair sheep that are actually our recips for our embryo program. And then we run about 50 donors and then 150 head uh, that we AI and breed naturally um, to raise show lambs to sell all across the country. Um, and then I also work for SE Online Sales as a sales rep out in the field. Uh, we do probably about 400 sales online last year. So I'm continually traveling all across the country looking at sheep and also traveling around helping all these kids. Uh, with these projects that we sell them. And so that's kind of, kind of what we got going right now. Um, and freshly engaged. Oh yeah. Freshly engaged to Tori Schwartz. Yes. There you go. So (laughs) some brownie points, you know, (laughs) there you go. There you go. Maybe she'll (laughs) listen and, and, uh, that'll help you out. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. (laughs) Uh, that's good, man. We're, uh, we're excited to have you on. Uh, it's funny that, uh, we had Al on last week and, at the end, I, I, uh, end of our episode, I asked him a couple questions. So this actually leads into our, our first kind of topic of discussion. We, uh, wanted to bring up with you. So Trevor's got a little soundbite that we, uh, we recorded, but didn't publish in that episode that, uh, that I want you to listen to. I think it's, uh, I think it'd be kind of fun. Hey Al, okay. before you go, before you go, yeah. we got, uh, we're going to have Justin Nathan on next week. Oh, wow. Um, I just want to ask him how many more, you know, five figure upper five figure bucks he's going to sell. Oh, he'll sell a lot more in his <laughs> lifetime. <laughs> he again that that you know that's a, you know and again we kind of talk about young folks that I, that I call up and comers. You know, I can remember when Justin was younger, and I mean he's loved this sheep deal. I mean this sheep deal's been, you know, has been his you know bread and butter. I guarantee he wakes up thinking sheep and goes to bed thinking about it and uh you know and i you know and he'll he'll uh he'll work at it hard and, and make a lot of good ones and so it uh i'll guarantee he'll sell he'll sell back it uh all joking aside i saw him i saw that five figure one two days after he had sold we'd seen him selling the deal but I hadn't seen him mm-hmm. and i told candy uh I was out there on a on a feed mission, and I stopped in and saw Justin, saw this sheep, and I told Candy, I didn't get two miles out of, out of Justin's yard. And I said, honey, if you'd have seen this one, you'd have got into some moldy money, honey, because we'd have had <laughs> <that> old. <laughs> and, 
and it was one of the deals that uh, we had found out who had bought him. Uh, Greg Beatty and Randy Hill had bought him, and we bought a jump on him immediately. Huh. Um, I knew, and it was one of those ones again. We had, and so we had bought uh, bought some semen on him, and so we were able to utilize the genetics. But uh, all kidding aside. We'd have been right in the middle of that mix if we'd have seen him uh, ahead of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that, was nice, that was a nice sheep. Yeah. So, pretty cool that Auschwinky told us that little story. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so Justin, let's start at the beginning of Nathan Club Lambs uh, to get into where you guys are today with the success you've had selling some of these these bucks and uh, winning weather shows and. Um, so tell us kind of the story of how it all started and then where, where you ended up today. Well, uh, it probably started with my dad. Uh, he, he raised Dorsets when I was growing up and then he kind of transitioned into like going to Sedalia and buying a couple blackface rams and trying to raise some shell lambs, I guess you could say. Uh, but, never really had the finances to do it, um, at the high level. Mm-hmm. So we kind of always would go to Sedalia and try to buy like that cheap twin, do a high seller, or, you know, bread identical and pedigree, but maybe that one only brought 500 and the rest of them pedigree cheap the same way, maybe brought five to 10,000, you know? Um, yeah. and so like, I was always like, man, whenever I get some money saved up, I'm going to try to buy like one of them higher end ones and uh, try to get after this deal. Um, and so, you know, showed in 4-H growing up, uh, sheep and cattle. Uh, I had a passion for the show cattle deal too, because I don't know, there's something about blowing a fat steer in a cooler room <laughs> every day that I just, I dig that. And so I don't know. I was probably 17 at the time and I just decided I was going to go to Iowa and show on, I think it was called the Northern Club Lamb or Northern Plains Club Lamb Association. And I went over there and I got my butt kicked. I don't think I stood above last place for a whole year over <laughs> there. And, uh, I mean, it was just, it was brutal. You had like, uh, he had Ricky Rosenbaum over there mm. at that time. And uh, he had the oldest Danny Barry. And I mean, them guys just would dominate. You had Brad Dale with his nephew, uh, uh, Brendan Kiesel. And I mean, I literally just went over there and they were kids from eight years old to 18 and they just smoked me. But what it taught me was it, it taught me how to show a sheep that maybe didn't have the best, assets and become a good showman Mm. and i guess that's probably where when i was 17 i met uh kent langmeyer at the nebraska state fair uh paulie murdoch had like four lambs in the grand drive that year and i won i was reserve showman at nebraska that year and she came up and asked me if i'd show a lamb in the grand drive for her and i was like well shoot yeah you know (laughs) i've never done this before um so I got out there and, uh, you know, I showed that lamb for Polly and I guess I did a good job because Kent Langmeyer came up to me and he's like, Hey, Justin, uh, you know, next year, if you're not busy during sales season, I, I'd love for you to come along and travel with me and help clip sheep and set sheep up and do all that. And I was just like, I was excited. I mean, I was like, <laughs> yeah. couldn't sleep and like wait to get there. 
And so uh, that next year I was 18 and, you know, went out to the premier 10 sale with Kent Langmire for that first time. And I was immediately hooked. Um, he worked my butt off, <laughs> but I, I was hooked. I mean, we left uh, Mead, Nebraska, I bet with about, oh, 75 to a hundred lambs in a stock trailer. Wow. And I mean, this was before like the internet sale really got going online sales. And that man had them sheep sold from probably Omaha, Nebraska, all the way to the gas station right before Premier 10 in Richmond um, back in them days. And I constantly, you know, this man didn't have a notebook. He had all these people's phone numbers memorized in his head. He didn't even use his phone book in the cell phone. And I was just, I was dumbfounded. Like didn't realize that how big a business the sheep industry was. And I was just, I mean, I was excited. Like, I mean, I got my butt yelled at a lot that weekend. Cause <laughs> when I showed up at his house, I just had a clippers and a, a suitcase and, you know, he's like, Hey, did you bring drench for these lambs? Did you, did you do this and that? And I'm like, didn't know I needed to. And I mean, that guy went off on me, got my butt <laughs> chewed. And I was like, I just started taking notes about all the stuff I needed to bring. And I mean, he just taught me everything that you needed to know to be successful in this deal. And so, you know, we had, we had a rough, rough little start there, but I mean, it worked out. I mean, I, I worked probably, from five in the morning till I don't even know it was probably two o'clock that next morning, setting sheep off, off that trailer and selling them. And I just remember calling my dad and mom and my dad's like, how's it going? And I was like, I love it. I just mm. can't wait till we go to a next one. I was like, I hope, I hope he invites me. And we got home and Kent's like, you know, you got some stuff you're going to have to work on. But, uh, he's like, if you want to come back, you know, we're going to go to, Oklahoma here in another 30 days. And I was just like, are you serious? We're going to a different part of the country and we're going to do this all over again. And he's Sign like, yeah, <laughs> sign me up. So we went and, uh, I went to Oklahoma again that year with him and I went down to Sedalia with him that year. And I guess it just kind of evolved where, you know, I was, I just started working for him and, you know, I was still in college at the, at that time. Uh, it was something to my mom for me to have a college degree. I would say probably if I didn't listen to my mother and appreciate my mom, I probably would have dropped out of school like an instant and just went to work for camp full time. Uh, <laughs> so, I mean, I started that next year kind of coming down and helping him through lambing season. And that's where I really learned how to manage baby lambs on the sides of their moms and, you know, just, the day-to-day grind of taking care of lambs in the jug. And then when people come look at them lambs, uh, I just learned how to sell them from him. I mean, this is the craziest fact. I, I know a lot of people probably be dumbfounded, but everybody that went to Kent's house will agree with us. I mean, we would have probably 75 to 85% of them lambs sold in the jugs. Wow. Jeez. Under a week old. And I mean, just the marketing behind it, like it blew my mind. Like he could lead these families in there, lead them over to this pen and like, there's your lamb, you know, or show them two or three. And them families would just 
go to town on it. I mean, and so I, I just became more addicted, I guess you could say, um, than anything, because it was just like being a part of something at that level was special to me. And it didn't bother me that I was just the, the worker bee, I guess you could say like that never, I just, I enjoyed it. That's what like that God's or that guy's word was gospel to me. So, I mean, if he told me that, you know, the water pails all needed to be switched. I mean, we hand watered everything at his house. And, uh, I mean, I don't know how many buckets I filled there, but still to this day, uh, Tori and, uh, our employees, like they get mad because I make them fill water pails. But <laughs> hey, I did it once. It's your turn now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it was something, you know, we gave them used fresh water. It seemed like they milked better than lambs were always fatter and bloomier. And, so we just kind of stuck with it and kept that going. And, and so we still do it today. Everybody that comes to my house is like, I can't believe you're hand watering these things. Like, you know, they make automatic tanks and I'm just like, man, it's, it's the Kent Langmire in me that we have fresh bedding, fresh water. You're feeling the best uh, alfalfa we can find in the country. And his saying was always, you know, uh, you feed them money to make them money. So if that, Hey, don't look like money. Don't feed it to them. Cause it ain't going to make you no money. So, mm-hmm. um, we kind of always lived by them mottos of what he taught me. Uh, I would say, you know, it wasn't until I was like a junior or senior in college, I was sitting in an econ class and Kent was blowing my phone up in the middle of this class. And I was just like, what the heck's going on? So I finally just like shot him a text, like what's up. And he's like, Hey, I need you to get in a truck and trailer. You need to go to, Eastern Iowa to pick up these lambs. And, uh, you know, that I just heard there's some good ones here. You need to like run over there and grab these things. And I just remember, like, I literally just walked out in the middle of this class and this egg econ guy was like, where are you going? And I'm, I'm going to go buy some cheap and I'm going to resell them <laughs> in a day or two and I want to make some money. And like that professor just looked at me like I was absolutely crazy and retarded for leaving his class. But I did. I, Hey, that's, uh, <laughs> that's economics. If you ask me, <laughs> here's yeah. putting it to practice. <laughs> yeah. And, and I mean, that, that was just the way it was. Like he would call me, I was two hours North of him, uh, in college and he'd call and I just drop everything and go there. If you know, there was a buck that needed to be go, go get looked at. Or if there, you know, was a weather or something that he heard about that we needed to try to go get bought and resold. I mean, I just, I guess I loved it and I probably didn't pay it enough attention in college. I mean, I got maybe a two, one to graduate, get my degree, but I mean, didn't really buy many textbooks because I mean, I was just addicted to this sheep, sheep thing. And so me and Ken just kind of kept working our partnerships and I mean, he'd trust me more every year. Um, like he started sending me out um, for four or five days on the road to kind of figure out where the next bucks were. And I mean, that was probably the best thing that ever happened for me because I think everybody in this industry right now, you stay at home in your barn and that's the hardest thing is, is when you stay there, you can't gauge where you're at within the industry. Oh yeah. And with Kent telling me like, Hey, you need to go to Brian Johnson's, Larry to Clay Elliott's, you know, schedules. Like, I mean, 
I don't know how many miles I put on my Toyota Tundra, but it was a pile and I enjoyed every second of it. And so that's kind of where I kind of started just going around, traveling around, looking at sheep. And I mean, I'd take a week at a time and just go as many farms as I could. And I mean, look at them through the middle of the night, whatever I needed to do to cover more ground. You so bet. he kind of started trusting me with that responsibility. And then I kind of started helping more families. Um, and then it was like in 2008, uh, I met the Shelkoff family uh, through Kent Langmire. And that's probably where it really like things heated up and changed for me. Cause for six months I'd work for Kent through lambing season and sale season. And then for six months in the summer, I'd go down and help the Shellcoff family with their show projects. And we showed hogs, sheep and cattle and their family, their dad was basically like, uh, here's Conrad and Chandler. And, you know, we need, the best stock we can possibly find for them. And we want to be competitive at every level. And them little boys had a passion for it and they were addicted to it as much as I was. And they, they had success their first year at the Nebraska state fair. They had the grand champion market lamb in 2009. And then the next year we had the grand champion market lamb in 2010 reserve in 2011 reserve in 2012 in 13, uh, they, uh, they actually helped the family out with one that got sick and, you know, couldn't have been more prouder than that family to help a family out that, you know, was just struggling with one and they kind of helped get it over the hump. And that sheep went on to win our state fair in 13. Wow. So just, just good people. Um, but then boys, I mean, it was, you know, it was nothing for them at 11 and 12 to get in a truck with me and we'd drive all the way down to Seagraves, Texas to Miller's to look at their lambs to drive all the way through the middle of the night to go to Mike Stitzline sale. Uh, <laughs> them, them kids were, I don't know, they were like my little brothers that I never had. Um, and they just wanted to be at the highest level and learn the sheep deal. So I kind of was learning from Kent and then I was learning the show side from the Shelkoff family. And so we did that for, I think that was started that in 2009. And then, uh, my deal with Kent just kept working great. Um, and then it was like in 2011 or 2012, uh, you know, I've been buying ewes every year when I worked for Kent, I basically would save up enough money to buy 10 to 20 bread ewes, maybe a year from him. Some years there's only five because I'd buy maybe higher end ones. And, I just remember him calling me, I think it was in 2012 and he's like, Hey, I got a, I got a deal going right now. And I'm like, with Kent, you just never knew. And I'm sure <laughs> he's like, he's like, I, I think I'm going to sell all my use. And I, you know, like my phone just drops, my jaw drops. And I'm like, you're, you're joking. Right. He's like, no, I, you know, Justin, I've been selling you some of them better use. And, uh, you know, I just got an opportunity that I don't think I can pass up. And so, you know, me and him talked for a long time and we kind of, you know, I had 50 of his use kind of already purchased between the last two to three years. And, you know, he had a guy offer crazy money for him. And so he, he sold out to pose there back there in Indiana. And, you know, 
it was just a weird deal for Ken. I mean, the guy, his mom was tearing up when they loaded them ewes. Kent was, I mean, he's just beside himself, you know, kind of like somebody has stole his dog. Huh. Um, <laughs> and I think it was like two weeks later, and he's like, hey, you know, I got these barns sitting here. And he's like, why, why don't you just bring all them ewes down that you have, and let's just work together. And I'm like, sounds good to me. You know, <laughs> you didn't have to even – really give me that option. And I was there with my use and, uh, we lambed out that first set together and we sold them very, very well. And then it was like Kent Langmeyer on steroids. Like if you <laughs> heard about a group of great use, uh, being sold, uh, I mean, I was in the truck going to try to buy them. And thankfully that was when Glasscock had all them 40 large use and, uh, we went down there and I don't know how much money we gave guy. I'm sure we paid for half of his new place that he bought there. <laughs> um, but we, we dug in on them 40 large genetics on the female side. And, uh, I guess it was a learning experience because two years before that we owned in on 40 large and we just didn't realize how valuable the females were going to be on that deal. Mm. Um, well, so we got, got that set of used bought and, uh, that's kind of when things started getting real, real for me. Um, so, you know, uh, that was a year that Brian Johnson sold, uh, like, uh, Oh gosh, there's three bucks. He sold one for like 74,000, one for 72,000. Um, I think it was game changer and trailblazer. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, you know, young me, um, you know, during the day that, like we were bidding on that. That was like the first buck sale. That was absolutely chaos. And, you know, Kent was always the type of guy, like, let's just get it up there and get these things going. And I remember it was like three o'clock in the afternoon. We were sitting by uh, an elevator uh, shoveling some corn and stuff. And he's like, pull that sale up. And I pulled that sale up and I'm like, well, that buck's at 30,000. And he's like, well, just jump it to 50 and let's see if anyone's at home. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. I don't <laughs> That's know aggressive. Really, don't really know if you understand this online deal, Kent, but you know, we'll, uh, we'll see if it's it it <laughs> So we jumped into 50 and immediately these people hit back. Wow. And then Kent's like, hit it again. Cause like he was just the guy that wouldn't give up. And I don't know, we got to like 57,000. And earlier that week we'd had like Tyson rule and a couple guys through that. We talked about maybe getting a partnership deal going. And I think Kent did it more so just to try to figure out where everybody was at, um, trying to learn. But I mean, them bucks got crazy. I got mad. I just went and partied that night and, uh, you know, Kent sat there in front of his computer all night, addicted to it and ended up probably behind us. One of the better bucks in the industry at that point in time and me being young and dumb, I wasn't listening. And, uh, he ended up buying that bulletproof buck with Heath Williams because Kent didn't even have an account. So Heath was the only person he knew he could call. So he called Heath and was like, Hey, buy that buck. And for me, and we ended up actually partnering with Heath on bulletproof. And that was probably our best piece of the puzzle that, you know, we didn't realize how valuable that sheep was until it was too late, like all of them. But right, we started with him and that cross back on them 40 large daughters. I mean, we had the Grand Inn Reserve at the Indiana State Fair and 
that was kind of when things just started blossom blossoming for me personally. And I kind of got pulled in two different directions of Kent was like, Hey, you need to move to me, Nebraska and be my full-time employee. And we're going to, you know, go to 300 U's and, you know, this is going to work out for, for us. And then I had this Shelkoff family that was like, Hey, just bring your use down here. And, you know, we're getting out of the pig deal and you can convert some barns over. And I kind of just had to make a choice um, between staying with Kent or kind of moving down here to the Shelkoffs. And I wasn't done with the showing deal um, to probably be just a full time shepherd, I guess you could say. Uh, I loved going to stock shows and I loved, you know, messing with the show steers and everything. So um, I moved down there and me and Kent kind of resolved our partnership. Um, he still helped me still. That guy is like a dad to me in this deal. Um, and I respect everything he's taught me and, you know, moved down here and we started raising Nathan club lambs and we haven't looked back since. Well, if you don't know that that is the sound of a high-performance diesel truck firing up, then you probably don't own one. However, if you do own one, you probably tow and haul with that thing quite a bit. And obviously, we're in wintertime here, so it's important to have a reliable truck that performs at the highest level. The guys over at Fleece Performance test their products like you use them, so you know they can stand up to the harshness that towing every day can do to your truck they have a complete lineup of race proven products everything from turbochargers and cylinder heads to lift pumps and injection pumps folks go ahead and visit fleeceperformance.com use promo code stocktalk for 10 percent off your purchase or you can just head on and over and visit them at their brand new service and manufacturing facility in pittsburgh indiana just west off indy uh, of indy uh, off indy uh, on I-74. So, folks, I'm telling you, in this time, in this day and age, it pays to have the good stuff. Fleece Performance Engineering has the good stuff. Let's get back to Justin Nathan. So you've talked a, a couple times about the partnerships. I mean, you kind of, I want to say, fell into the partnership with Kent because, honestly, I think your your time as an employee th- – for him led to that just natural partnership with moving all your use to his place. And then obviously your partnership with Heath Bulletproof. And uh, you've kind of mentioned a couple there in your story. So let's dig into that a little bit. And I'd love to hear any advice you have for me, honestly, and any of you listening. What recommendations do you have of navigating those partnerships? And what are some of the do's and don'ts and maybe experiences you've had with, with several of your partnerships? Oh man. Uh, well, not every partnership probably going to be a great partnership, but I mean, I try to be upfront as possible in the beginning before we do anything. So everybody knows exactly where we're at on stuff. Mm. And then, you know, trying to make the most sense, whether it's a buck or a donor, you um, just trying to understand what our goals are with that animal. Um, you know, if it's a buck and I think that's where this sheep deal is kind of changing a lot right now. Um, if it's a buck you're buying to breed, you're used to, then you need to breed your use to that buck. 
But if it's a buck you're buying and your number one priority is to generate income off of semen, then you need to focus 100% on selling semen on that buck and promoting that buck. Um, and so I guess with my partnerships right now um, on the buck side, you know, we have to, you know, realize that that buck's the buck we're trying to breed the majority of our used to, or if that's the buck that we're out there trying to promote in the semen world and understanding exactly, you know, hey, that buck's not fertile. Uh, we probably don't need to kick him out with 50 to 70 ewes to try to sit there and uh, just try to get our ewes bred. We need to keep that buck in an individualized pen and try to get him healthy to be able to ship semen on. Um, and on the donor use side, you know, as long as we all know exactly when we're flushing it, we can agree on a sire. And uh, I mean, we kind of roll that way, you know, um, a lot of them partnerships happen on the fly. Um, I know like the BBU at Sedalia three, four years ago that Harold sold for 36,000. Mm -hmm. I mean, I literally got that all done in the parking lot about 10 minutes before she sold. And, uh, I mean, it was just two phone calls and things all kind of came together where everybody was like, you know, this is a piece that we can market on and try and make something work. So, I mean, I don't know. Kent was always great at it. I, I will say he's probably even better than I am at it. Um, and I just kind of always learned from him that, you know, you, you have to have your hand in that pod on them elite ones to keep yourself relevant. Uh. Um, every year he was the type of guy that we're going to go buy the best buck in the country or we're going to find one that we think we need and we're going to own it every year. You could have – bulletproof 40 large sitting in the buck battery but that guy was already ready to go find the next one and right. so i guess i've kind of lived by that to you know not be satisfied with what we have to always keep digging for that next piece and so yeah we do get a bunch of partnerships because um then things are usually you're paying a premium for them and you have to figure out how to come up with the cash i guess yeah <laughs> that's right yeah uh okay I, I let's dive okay i want to dive into that harold you a little bit because at sedalia when that thing walks in the ring just even in class it was like all right show's over that's the one yeah. um i mean pretty much everybody in that barn was like that's a that's a good that's a good sheep yes uh, as, as schminky would say that's good that's a good uh, <laughs> exactly. uh you know and i was always curious to know i mean obviously unless some guy out there just has crazy money and, and is selfish or whatever, you know, it goes out and buys a sheep like that, you yeah. know, outright, I, I would think, you know, so let's talk, talk through the partnership a little bit. If you, if you don't mind, yeah. like, what do you do? Like when you call some guys like, Hey, this is the one, I don't know if you heard about her. Here she is. Uh, here's what I have in mind. Are you yeah. in or not? Is that kind of, well, it, it, first, it first started out as, uh, um, so like I seen that you at Harold's, um, as a ULM the year before and they wouldn't sell her. So number one of my confidence level in that sheep was through the roof. And so when she was out in the ring, um, Brian Lambright was standing next to me and I was like, you know, Hey, like looked at him, my best pal. And I'm like, we're going to own that thing right together. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Don't worry. We're going to own that one. 
Well, we all know Sedalia. It's like, you know, everybody starts drinking and having a good time. And it was like, I don't know, seven o'clock that night. And Brian's like, hey, I'm out. You're on your own. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, really? And he's like, yeah. And don't even try to put anything together. You're just going to own that. Or I'm going to own that you. So you ain't going to outbid me. So that was what got me fired up really to get something going. Um, and then that was when uh, I called Wade Franklin that next morning. He finally answered his phone and called me back about this you. And I just went off and I'm like, dude, I think, you know, she's something that's different genetically. That's not line tight with a lot of the hot bucks out there. And I was like, I think we could cross her back on some of your bucks and we could probably make something. And, uh, so he's like, I- I'd say just go in there and get her bought. And, uh, I got your back and we're going to, we're going to get this deal done. And I'm like, okay, sounds great. So kind of was getting ready to walk up to the building and my phone started going off again. And I'm like, oh gosh, it was Wade. And I'm like, oh, I bet he's backing out, you know? And it was actually complete opposite. He's like, Hey, I found us another partner. So we got a little bit more money to get this deal done. And I'm like, okay. And he's like, you need to go see Jason Simpson. So I walked over to Simpson and he's like, you know, I'm trying to get my money rounded up, but I'm struggling, but I'd love to get on the bus because I think that use way good. And so I was like, well, here's, here's the deal. I get a flusher early and then for late lamb, she's going to Wade's house. So as long as you're good with all that, I mean, you can be in. And so we actually had 50,000 gathered up to buy that you and so I kind of played a trick on Lambright because I knew he would, he would think I'd probably be bidding on her. So I actually went up to the auctioneer on the backside of the block at Sedalia and I gave him my bidder's number. And I said, if my hat's on, I'm in on the Herald. You, you don't even have to like, look at me. You just can yell out the bid. And so, I mean, they started yelping and everything. And I mean, I don't know it. It got there fast. I know that because we went from <laughs> like zero to 30,000 in a hurry. And then Brian was trying to figure out who he was bidding against and kind of got mad. And I was literally standing five feet from him. And uh, he was like, who the hell bought that you? And I was like, I guess I did. And he's like, you bastard. <laughs> he walked away. And I mean, you know, he was a little hot. We didn't talk for maybe a few days, but, uh, you know, it was just, it was good fun, but I mean, that, that was kind of how that one all came together. Um, wow. I mean, that's great. I love hearing them stories. I mean, it, people don't know the, the madness that goes behind purchasing some of these things. And I guess a, a good thing that I kind of want to touch on, and I, I'm always just fascinated rather what species it'd be that, uh, people love to invest in good ones, but yep. better yet, they like to invest in the pedigree. So, my question to you, I mean, we're hungry for knowledge here. We want more advice. But um, yeah. to those listening, what tips do you have, like just that you that you were talking about, what made you dive in? Obviously, she's good. But what tips do you have for lining up her pedigree with stuff that you may have at home and just being a student of those genetic lines? And ultimately, uh, it, if the genetic prices are that high, how much weight do you put on phenotype? Oh, that's that's a loaded question, <laughs> but I I mean like with the Harold deal, um, I guess it goes back to my roots of what Kent Langmire was teaching me a little bit in the industry 
uh, of going to Oklahoma every year. And he was like, you know, you don't know which guy in Oklahoma is going to have the best set, but one of them guys down there is probably going to have the best set in the country. And so I guess going to Joe Harrell Clublands for 10 years and being able to see them females year in and year out and what they were doing, I mean, gave me as much confidence a confidence in that you as anything. Um, cause that year before, uh, or that, that lamb crop before BB sold like them females that year when they were babies, I mean, everybody in the world was trying to buy them and Joe, Joe wouldn't sell. I mean, he was just like, nah, I think I'm going to keep them. <laughs> and when I went back there in April, um, he had just freshly shorn them use and they were out on wheat pasture. And I mean, that was probably the best set of 100 U's I've seen in one pen since uh, the 40 large U's that year at Guy Glasscox. I mean, they were hampy, white-legged, high-headed, shallow-bodied, and still had shape and muscle. And they just walked around like show sheep out in this pasture on this wheatgrass that was beautiful. And, I mean, it was like somebody should take a picture now because this is what they're supposed to look like. Um <laughs> And so that, that's what made me real confident in that deal. And then like that female, um, like Tyler knew, like I always have a little insight with Tyler cause he, he's willing to tell me cause he's, he's kind of doing the exact same thing with his grandpa that I did with Kent. And, you know, he kind of knew some of the history on some of that stuff to give me a little insight on it all. And so that, I, I guess that's what made me confident was well, she looked good on hoof. Her mom was a good one. And, all of her half sisters that were out there that day. I mean, I would have probably bought 20 or 30 of them use if I could have got them priced to me. Yeah. So, uh, that that's kind of how I do it. Uh, you know, I don't ever really get caught up necessarily on a pedigree, I guess of like, Hey, every sheep's gotta be bred this way. Um, to me, a good one's a good one. And if, if it's good enough for me to look at and I'm happy with it, I'm going to try that one. And so that's kind of always been part of my deal. Um, you'll see me and Craig Green sit at them sheep sales um, on a chair, and it'll be like the 10th class of crossbred ewe lambs at Indiana at the Midwest Elite. But you just never know when, you know, any breeder is going to run that sheep in front of you that has a piece or, you know, something that we need to make something with, you know. And right. So I guess you can kind of call us that we kind of sit there like hound dogs, but uh. I mean – to me anymore, if you're just going to buy from all the big guys or, you know, just a certain few, you're limiting the amount of opportunities you have within the sheep industry, I guess. Mm. Yeah. Well, you know, it was, I can't remember who we were talking to Trev, but uh, we, we were talking to somebody else about just the genetic pieces that, that are in other guys' places. And sometimes they'll have like just some absolute dogs running around but maybe their mom did this or their grandma was this and mm. uh, they're, you know, a flush mate to this thing that want to show. Uh, so it's, it's kind of interesting just cause you know, I like, I hate looking at bad, bad livestock <laughs> and, and if they, if they suck, but their genetics are good, it's kind of like, you know, six, one way, half dozen, the other, I'd rather look at a good one than something that's just out there run around unless they throw good ones. And, you know, it's kind of, kind of interesting how much weight you, you know, some people put on genetics versus, you know, are they good stock and then move on. So yeah. uh, it's kind of cool. 
So, uh, Trav, I think we got an interesting topics from a hat. So let's jump into that segment. Topics from a hat brought to you by Fierce Threads. The only merchandise Stock Talk gets comes from the great folks at Fierce Threads. Fierce Threads is your number one source for high quality screen printing and embroidery. Put your business success forefront today and upgrade your apparel with the good folks there down in Texas at Fierce Threads. Visit fierce-threads.com today. Thank so, you very much. Colin on Facebook sends us a uh, very good topic of discussion. He wants to know the best way to deal with difficult show families. He says, for instance, they had one that they placed a high-quality weather to, and he goes and shows up to this place unannounced just to check in, only to find that there was some homemade cattle feed that he was feeding this really good weather. How do you handle a situation like this, or maybe if you have your own instances that that you've had that you corrected? Oh, I mean, I think uh, going out and checking on your weathers that you sell is definitely something for a breeder that needs to happen um, because there's obviously a lot of kids out there that need help. Um, just like this situation, I mean, they probably are thinking that feed is feed and everything can eat everything else is feed. Um, and, you know, it's it's one of them things that you got to handle it in a professional way where you're not, uh, I guess, talking down to them um, and talking to them about their concerns. Uh, you know, to me, I think when you sit there and look at it, I would basically just ask them what's going on, why are they feeding this, um, and what their thoughts are. Because, I mean, to me, you never want to criticize someone for feeding their animal because that's what you want them to do. Um, but you know, they need to learn the concerns with feeding some cattle feed to a sheep. Uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. that thing could have copper in it and it could kill your lambs, mm. you know, and I'd probably approach it from that sense, you know, and try and, you know, reel them back into reality of, Hey, here's some, you know, lamb 19 or lamb 17. Um, I think this would be better for them and do, do a better job and be more consistent to make that animal better at a higher level. Um, so, but you know, I try to tell a lot of them families from the time they leave our house with them animals, you know, we'll, we'll send a lot of our families home with instructions right there that day. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, so that would help that situation because you'd be like, are you following my instructions that, you know, we sent you with when you left our house from day one. Right. And, you know, you can try and fix that that way versus just kind of having to be that the hard ass or the guy yeah. that's kind of again go in there and criticize little Johnny with this 4-H project, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess that that's the way I, I would probably address that or handle that um, in my situation. How about you guys? What would you do? Yeah. I, you know, there's, there's some people out there in this world that just don't care. And yeah. they, <laughs> they literally, are going to do what they're going to do regardless of what you tell them. So you got to first, you know, luckily I've been in a situation in my, in my professional career to be able to realize, you know, when is it time to throw in the towel? Um, you hate to give up on people, but sometimes it's, it's worth your time to go find the next show family that wants to work hard at it uh-huh. and, and actually do well. So I think you gotta, you gotta do a little self-realization there of, okay, is this situation, something that I would want to continue next year 
or in the next six months. And so that's step one. And then, all right, if it's something that, you know, I think we could work through and correct, let's do that. And then, you know, obviously you got to sit there and, and ask them the tough questions of, of, you know, well, what's, why did you buy this, buy this weather? If, if you're going to feed a cattle feed, you know, um, what, what's your goal here? Uh, that Uh kind of thing. But, you know, I think working with difficult show families, honestly, if they're just being a pain in the ass because that's their nature, uh, you know, sometimes those people are just probably better off figuring out on their own, um, and, and not worth your time. And then the other side of it is, is you gotta, you gotta be inclusive too. Um, you know, because sometimes there's those families out there that just don't know any better. Right. Um, and so those are the families that I think, you know, you want to go the extra mile for and help out. Um, and if you see signs of them changing, um, uh, and, and listening to what you're, you're trying to do and teach them, then obviously you want to keep them on board. So, yeah, um, I, if I could yeah. interject a little bit, I mean, it kind of goes exactly with what your guys saying and Nate or, uh, uh, Justin, I, uh, I agree 100% about the learning curve deal to go in there and just be a butt head about it and say, look, you're screwing this thing up and all this, that gets you nowhere. Um, you just kind of have to weigh out the experience level of the family and what the ultimate goal is. Just like Corey was saying for me, um, you know, I, I'm open everybody up. I don't close anybody out as far as uh, families and customers that I deal with. But it's a long-term investment sake, and those who are very, very good at details and letting me know, uh, sending videos and pictures and asking questions, I'm dealing with those people for year, years and years, uh, multi-seasons. And there's a, there's a fine line between inexperience and inability. Um, mm. I think the ex- inexperience is very, very easy to work with. Because you can go in there and give a little bit of knowledge. For example, hey, sheep can't eat beef feed because <laughs> it may kill them. <laughs> I mean, that they may just be like, oh, well, we have cattle and I figured, you know, it's close. it looks the same. So therefore, it must be the same. Actually, no, it may have copper in it. It could potentially kill them. But hey, like you said, here's some lamb 19 that may work best. And then <laughs> that little bit of knowledge skyrockets them. Oh my gosh. You know, Justin came here yesterday and we learned so much about feed nutrition. Yeah. Yeah. But then you have the inability part of things. And those are the the ones that just don't care or just don't care to learn. Um, Those are the ones that I don't care to deal with, to be honest with you. Um, It may be a half a season or if I get to the full season, I'll be surprised. But if I go over there and I have rations laid out, I always give my families three goals to achieve, and I always ask them, what are we doing today to reach our three goals? Um, and everyone's different. You can be like, hey, I just want to make it to the fair. That's an awesome goal to have for a first, first-time first family. Or, hey, I want to win the whole damn thing because last year we were reserve. Um, yeah. Whatever it is, you just have to get that. But if they're unable to try to push themselves and work hard to get there, I'm out. I, I don't have yeah. much patience for that. Um, but in experience, I'm, I'm all in on that side of thing. I think there's, there's a fine line. You just got to kind of navigate and understand that every family is different. Beautifully said, Kirky. Yeah. Nice I job. Drops. That was, that was nice. That was good. Mic <laughs> drop. Way to go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, thank you to our buddy Colin for sending that in. Uh, that was good. And something that, uh, you know, 
us uh, younger guys deal with. And I know a lot of guys out there that have been doing this a lot longer than we have, uh, have learned the hard lessons of going over and uh, checking on livestock that aren't being managed correctly or like you tell them to. So good topic. So Justin, you touched on this earlier and uh, this is something that I, I've been wanting to, I've talked to a couple guys outside of the podcast, just about just trying to gauge, you know, where we're at, um, you know, in this, in this club lamb industry and where we're going to go just because of the magnitude of some of these bucks and ewes that are being bought and sold and, and things mm-hmm. like that. So, um, you know, the, the AI and, and embryo transfer deal is not new in the club land business, but it is, it is certainly been taken to another, another level here in like the last five, 10 years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so like these guys, you know, like a Tyson rule, like, like, uh, you know, what some of these other outfits are doing here, um, that are kind of mimicking what, you know, a boar and bull stud operations do, um, you know, these Ram batteries and just offering, you know, like a full service breeding opportunity with, with semen and, and AI groups and flush work and all this other stuff. Um, what do you see, you know, pros and cons, uh, on how big of an impact that's going to have on us as we move forward? I mean, I, I think it's going to have one of the biggest impacts on our industry. And I think not only from the guys that are selling the semen or, selling them elite females and them donor type caliber females, but it's also going to relinquish to the smaller guys that have 20 U's in, you know, Northwest Nebraska. And uh, it gives them an opportunity to get to them highest level bucks. Um, maybe that they couldn't go to Sedalia and buy for 50 to 70,000, but now they can buy a jump of semen for five to $10,000. They get that opportunity. Um, so I, I think the upside of this is huge. Um, number one for the breeder side, uh, you know, I just heard some numbers the other day on the bullseye buck of Schroyer's, uh, that they've sold over 3,500 straws of semen. Okay. Uh, 3,500 straws of semen at $250 a straw. Um, that's crazy numbers. Uh-huh. Um, that, that's kind of a lifetime changing money for, you know, individuals. Um, and, I know like, I mean, I've heard drop the mics, uh, pushing over 500,000 sold. Um, and so when you, when you hear them types of numbers thrown out there, uh, I mean, for a breeder, it's awesome because it's a new, new Avenue to make income when you're doing this for your livelihood. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and so I guess I look at that from a huge positive. I also, from the guys that are willing to go, breed to these bucks um, and buy semen on them. I think it's a great opportunity for them smaller guys to be able to utilize the top genetics in the country. And it makes the playing field so, so big because now, you know, little Johnny in South Dakota or little Johnny in Minnesota, they can raise the next great show weather or the next great female because they're utilizing these bucks. And I mean, it's just a matter of being able to help these smaller guys not just breed off of a pitcher because, I mean, that that's the one thing in the, in the industry that I would say is a negative towards this is it's pushing our limits of making every pitcher so pitcher perfect mm-hmm. that 
these guys are utilizing these bucks and thinking they're going to do things that they might not do. And so to me, that's a balance in our industry of how do we keep both of these things in, in, in check to not take advantage of someone um, in a negative side it is my concern, I guess. So. Uh, right. Um, so I, I'm a, I'm a big believer that, that, this open up this opens up a lot of doors you know from the standpoint of of getting getting those genetics out there uh for lots of other people to use um i don't know maybe it's not a negative but i'd like to get your take on it you know is there certain genetics you know when something gets real hot i mean it's on fire i mean you just talked about yeah. two of the two of the most on fire bucks right now just from a, a semen purchasing standpoint and, and the winds that those two uh have gathered up here the last few years is i mean we we've not really seen it done um on this level in, in a while at least yeah. um and so you know is there a a larger risk for saturating certain genetics uh, out there you know what's your thoughts there with that well i, th- I think as an industry we've already kind of got ourselves with our backs a little bit against the wall um because when you look at like you know in the last six seven years i mean you think about the brian johnson bucks that got used and all the bucks that got bought out of there i mean there's not very many flocks probably in the industry right now that their genetics don't tie back to Brian Johnson's place. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so is that a good or a bad thing? I don't, I mean, I don't necessarily know that it's a bad thing, but I mean, everybody has dropped the Mike U lambs. Everybody has bullseye daughters. And I mean, I think it, it's kind of negative because there now you have genetic lines that are being utilized in a magnitude. So now we need them out cross bucks even faster. Right. And how, you know, where me, I'm going to still utilize some of Tyson stuff. And, you know, so do I make him an outcross buck? Do you know that that's how quick can we make that sheep? Um, to get them out there to use on bullseye daughters or use on drop the mic daughters. And I think that's where right now is the biggest uh, change or biggest thing that's going on. The guys that can find them bucks and learn how to cross them things faster. They're, they're just getting another step ahead. If that makes any sense. Uh Right. Right. Yeah. Which kind of leads us into another, (laughs) another deal that segues perfect into another question uh, that we had because you know, uh, you said we kind of have our backs up against the wall and, uh, in some areas and, and obviously lots of people, anybody that's listening that has any, knows anything about the club lamb deal kind of knows about this dwarf gene and, and the challenges and opportunities that are available with it. Um, and I've had lots of conversations with folks about, uh, how they're managing it and, and, uh, utilizing it to, to continue to make sheep better. But, you know, obviously you want to limit the amount of midgets you have, but, um, and then we just kind of talked about, you know, saturating some genetics and, and, uh, you know, what's the outcross going to look like and that sort of thing. So what other things, you know, do do you see going on, uh, that we should, we should focus on? And I mean, it could be anything from, from politics in the show ring, if you want to talk about that. 
Oh, I mean, <laughs> or, I mean uh, you know, whatever. It's it's just uh, there's lots of things that are happening right now, and so um, yeah, and I, and I mean, I think that's a that's the toughest deal in the show industry right now. Um, and thankfully, I get to travel enough to be able to watch and understand stuff. Uh, but I think one of the hardest things going on right now in the industry is just being under being able to understand where the sheep industry is going. Mm-hmm. What what is the right direction? I think is the toughest thing in the world um, because I don't, I mean, I think I went to seven or eight state fairs and you know, like the one that I thought walks in and wins for fun um, might win a class might go third. And that's the hardest thing as an industry is if I ain't, if I'm not at that show and I don't see that animal that went third, that I think was the man child for the show. I mean, maybe I'm basing my breeding decisions on the wrong information mm. of what, what's actually happening or what, what actually got the backdrop in the banner. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that's the part to me that's the hardest in this thing right now is because, like, we sell sheep at a high level, you know, as an industry. But I think the upside for us to sell or the ceiling of where we could sell these things will even be even higher if, you know, there ain't no BS out there. And the best one just flat wins the show. And I mean, I've been trying to get through to that committee at Louisville. Um, I'm not sitting here knocking Logan Newsom, knocking the grand, knocking the reserve, but I maybe thought there was a couple more freaks that walked out there that maybe, you know, I always look at a show this way. If that grand lamb had a pair of balls underneath him, would I go breed 50 to a hundred used to that sheep. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, so to me, I'll, I look at the two at Louisville or them two that I'm going to go out and kick out to a hundred use. I mean, maybe, maybe not. I think there was a couple others that I maybe would have been all over to utilize in that sense. If, if that makes any sense, I guess. Yeah. That's, yeah. That's I get my thought process leaving a show like, okay, if that sheep was there as a male, would you write a fifty to hundred thousand dollar check for that one as a buck? Mm. And you know, I don't know. Maybe that's just crazy thinking that way. But I want to see the freakazoid win the show. I want to see the one that has the most best qualities. I guess you know because it's like like I try to explain to everybody these these guys that want a single trait fault one and beat one. That's incredible. Uh, is scary to me because. I mean, I've never seen the perfect sheep yet. Mm-hmm. So if it's only got one hole, that one's in a high level caliber. Right. And to me, you know, there is too many times in the classes at Louisville that uh, this class, we're going to beat the one that's cracked open and wide and stout because he rolled the hawk a little bit and we're going to use the narrow one. And then the next class, well, we, we'll, we'll just say that it's all right that that sheep rolls his hawk and we'll use that one to win this class. And you know, that's what I try to tell everybody why we like showing the Scott Griners or the Kyle Smithwicks of the world, because there ain't no BS. Them guys sit sit by the gate, watch them sheep walk in. They pull what they like. As an individual at the show, you can sit there in the crowd and you can basically pick out their class winners and follow them through the whole show. And they don't they don't go off the path. Um, they kind of stay true to what they want. And they're painting a picture of what they want mm. the whole way through the show. 
And I just thought that Louisville this year was kind of, oh, we're going to do it this way, this class, this way, this class. And so I, I've been wanting Louisville to go to a three panel judges and make it like the Denver steer show and yep. give each judge an equal uh, percent in the equation and, you know, put their personal scores for that class on a board because there's no accountability. As soon as you're done judging, you just get to walk to your car and go home. There ain't no reviews. There isn't, you know, nothing type of backlash to, you know, Hey man, why'd you do this? You know, um, where if you have that panel of judges and two judges put one first and the third judge puts it ninth, it's like, Hey, we need to stop this show and figure out what the heck's going on right now. Right. You know, um, because we all work so hard at it. I mean, I just think it's what needs to happen. So, yeah, I thought yeah. it was interesting what you said there about if you can't be at the show, how do you know your favorite one went third? Um, you know, hopefully the one that did win the show is your favorite and is the best one, but there's always that I call them underdogs. I, I'm always a, a, I favor the underdog sometime when I'm in the buying market just because <laughs> you're like, gosh, that thing is three pounds of feet away from being next level good or whatever it is. But yep. it's interesting to me that you brought that point out because those who go third may have just been lost in the mix and not talked about next year. I mean, especially if it's a female class, a you, a guild or a heifer, man, she was this close, but she went third. So nobody talks about her. And she's probably one that somebody's going to retain if it's an open show. And we're going to hear about her offspring next year. Um, yeah. I think that's that's fascinating stuff. So, yeah. Well, so you bring up the Louisville show, and it's interesting because that's probably the longest I've ever sat and watched that show, just from start to finish. Um, because, you know, I kind of wanted i I need to gauge where where we need to go. You know, what genetics do we need to find? Uh, what pieces are we missing? That sort of stuff. And it's, it's crazy because, you know, I kept there and I I just sat every single class. I'm like, man, there's a lot of sort on hind leg, like a lot of sort. And, and, you know, obviously some people put a bigger emphasis on that than others, but you know, there's some real stout wolfy ones that were pretty straight and bow legged. And then there was some real no muscled ones that were pretty bendy and, and square. and, And, and then there were some in between. And it's just like, man, how, how do you get all the pieces together, keep these things good enough built and, and moving? Because the elite ones have to. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and so that's what I, I thought was kind of interesting. And class to class, it was like, it, it did vary. I mean. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, hey, let's just all be honest. We all talk about making sheep structurally correct, but I mean, how many sheep truly are just structurally correct in their build. I mean, they're, they're straight fronted and, you know, I mean, it's just, I mean, that it's a, it's kind of a, a tough area on the sheep industry because I don't know if we really have a true deem of acceptability in terms of mm-hmm. what is structurally sound, you know, like some judges, as long as they get out and move, they're sound, you know, um, you think like a hog or a sheep where their back foot's got to hit their front hole. And, you know, I think that's one thing that's, crazy in our industry is there's just not a lot of guys paying attention to that type of detail on a sheep, you know? And I think, I just think that we need to open our eyes and be more 
I guess, uh, have a better stance of where we stand with each thing and what's acceptable to us and what's not acceptable. You know? mm-hmm. And that, w- that was my whole deal or my whole takeaway from Louisville was is, okay, w- what is acceptable to you in terms of your structure of that one's backhawk ain't good enough, this one's good enough. And, you know, that that's a part that bothered me. And I drove home a little upset or a little mad about it. And, you know, I still, you know, happy for everybody that won and, you know, it was their time and that's what needed to happen. But I just think as an industry, we all are just wanting that fair shake of like knowing that everything that's going on is going on at the right level to give these kids a hundred percent of an equal opportunity. And I just think that's what needs to happen more than anything right now within our industry. Uh Yep. That's uh and, and that's across species. I mean, really, yeah. and we've talked about that several times with other people too, um, you know, on the show too. So it's, it's interesting because uh, you know, this, it, it, and that's namely why I asked the question is because where, where the heck are we going structurally? What's because in the hog deal and the cattle deal, I mean, they have these big, these big breeding shows in the clubland business. We don't have that at all. I mean, if you want to call Sedalia or Reno, something like that, but those, I don't think those are industry changing, you know, shows that just say like, Hey, this is, this is what we need. This is where we're going. This is where the focus needs to be. Most yeah. people are showing up to those places to find the genetics and, and the type of sheep that they want to bring home and they don't care how, how they sort, um, yeah. you know, so that's the, that's the hard thing that, that I've been trying to figure out too, is just like, well, and I think Sedalia 10 years ago, it was that. I mean, that set the tone for what was going on in the industry. But I also think that every breeder in the country was holding their best two male sheep back to try to go win Sedalia and sell it for a big amount of money. Mm-hmm. Where now these guys are cashing them in in March for the same type of money they were yeah. sitting on waiting for to sell it in June, you know, and I, I think that's like one of the biggest issues facing our sheep industry right now um, in terms of, you know, like Sedalia used to be the monumental show uh, where every breeder was there to buy breeding stock. Mm-hmm. And, you know, how many years did the the ram that sold for five to 10,000 at Sedalia, um, you know, we'd buy one of them and that would be our $50,000 ram. You know, you didn't yeah. think he was that day but that was a skinny sheep that got another chance and he had another gear. And now we are breeding a sheep on that truly was a great one. He just took time to get there. Or now if them things at two and a half, three weeks old, don't quite give a guy the right impression. They just get banded and sold for a, a good high dollar weather instead of being fed on for another 90 to a hundred days. And I mean, I, I just wonder how many bucks that we cut as an industry now, that we used to keep intact to go sell at Sedalia. And then we're probably bucks that went on and, you know, did more for the industry than, you know, the ones that we're selling now. Hmm. So I'm, uh, I'm kind of working as a, uh, Oh, I guess a, a trainee, I guess, to sit on the committee at Sedalia and, and kind of, yeah. you know, there's, there's this huge gap between, uh, you know, the, the guys in the club lamb deal versus, uh, the breeding sheep side of, side of things. And they're two totally different kinds of sheep, but, uh, you know, Sedalia for those guys is still 
what it used to be for the club lamb deal. Yeah. I mean, yeah. that, that is their big show to go to, to buy and sell and trade breeding stock. And, yeah. and, you know, on the club lamb side, you might see one or two that walk in on the, on the buck ring. That's just like, man, that thing's good. Let's, you know, yeah. but yeah. you know, like you said, so just for my own curiosity, what would you say, how do we how do we make that show and sale a bigger deal than you know you know trying to get these guys to you know hey let's hold back a couple bucks here or let's not ban this one and try to go you know yeah and i i think that it's gonna be a tough battle um just because them guys can cash in in march for the same type of money um but i also think that what helps you know, live sales or live events, um, you know, and I, I can say this um, with running that young gun sale down in Texas and the big gun sale, you know, I get in the vehicle and I travel for a week and I get to them guys' farms and I beg them to bring me them elite ones, you know, and I don't know if there's a person at Sedalia that could get in that car and be like, hey, I'm going to go out and go hit, you know, Ella Brock's, the Tyson Rules, the Brian Johnsons, um, Ty Allen, Cooper Newcomb's places, um, Brian Riley's places, and be like, hey, guys, what's it take to get you to bring me this sheep here? And maybe that's what a guy does to get some more of them elite ones there. Um, because I think all of us, you know, the Internet works well to sell livestock. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's awesome. And I think the mentality right now in the sheep industry was, I'm not going to go to a live event unless I have the hammer. And so if you're not out there trying to convince some guys to bring you the hammer to the sale, it's a tough deal to get guys to hold them for them live events. Right. But I, I think live events are still huge in marketing because it's just like me. I haven't been to a live sale and sold something for a few years and you know, everybody sees the sheep, they're excited and they're happy. But when you can come to them live events and have them sheep look the part and be at that high level, it just adds more value to your business in terms of, you know, making people believe in the pictures they're seeing. And, you know, when you have success of them sheep that you sold for a lot of money online, I mean, it just, it's a big snowball effect to make it better. Mm -hmm. Good stuff, boys. I was sitting here listening. I uh, don't have enough sheep knowledge to chime in on that conversation, but uh, I'm sure a lot of people would that are listening. So, all right, Corey, let's hit him with another segment. Social Smash. Ooh, Social Smash brought to you by Brad Howe Ford. So you get a fender bender. Maybe you smash up that vehicle. Visit Brad Howe Ford in Kokomo, Indiana. It's time to upgrade to a new truck. Cruise into that next show. With Brad Howell Ford, they have award-winning customer service that will lead you in the right direction on your next vehicle purchase. So, Justin, as you know, uh, Social Smash is where we kind of let all of our pet peeves out that we find on social media, and we've also kind of parlayed it. We've covered a few pet peeves already. Yeah, we've we've kind (laughs) of parlayed it into the industry by itself. So, uh, we're curious to know, uh, we kind of did this segment to... uh, to air out the pet peeves, just mainly so people can correct them. Uh, admittedly, yeah. we were a little negative at first, Corey and I were, but we've kind of evolved <laughs> it, and we see less of it now. So hopefully, this is helping. Yeah. But what are your some of your pet peeves? Uh, I mean, 
any type of social media that is going after a young kid, um, trying to put them down for something. I mean, to me, uh, just drives me insane, Mm. I guess. Um, I I hate stock shows that want to go after kids for a failed drug test or, you know, um, maybe a rules infraction. Um, to me, I, I just don't think that's anything that needs to be out on the social net. I think we need to handle that more professionally. And, you know, I think criticizing kids that are successful is another one. Uh, I just hate it when there's hardworking kids that they've won a bunch and they deserve it. Um, I think we need to praise them more than try and put them down where I think there's some people on social media that's, that's where their five minutes of fame can, they can say something about somebody on there. And I, I don't really like that. It's actually why I got rid of social media. I make Tori do it all now. So, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I, I don't know. I think them, them there, uh, really get me. Um, and I mean, we all get negative about judges and stuff and I need a reality check sometimes that, you know, we just gotta just go away from the show and there's going to be another one tomorrow. Um, mm. we kind of got to get to some of that mentality too. Yep. Um, you know, cause we all want to sit there and gripe and gripe and I'm, I'm as bad as anybody. Um, but I also, I just think that, you know, asking judges, you know, why they did what they did after the shows and trying to understand what was going through their heads, I think is, is a thing that needs to happen more because to me, then that maybe is going to make them think a little bit more next time about before they beat one that they shouldn't, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, that that's been something that I think is, uh, needs to happen, I guess, more often is just trying to understand guys after a show, you know, mm. and I, I don't know that, that, that part hits home with me a lot. Cause you know, I've, I know I've approached a few judges and maybe it's came off the wrong way and it wasn't really that I wanted to rip them out or anything, but I wanted to understand what was going on in their head, you know, cause like judging coaches, when they work out with kids at my house, it's like, they stop and they're like, I just got to know, like, were you just lost in space? Were you uh, thinking about your grandma's cookies? Like what, what we got going on here, bud? Like, you know, um, and, and that's where I think, you know, some guys get taken the wrong way that they're just mad about everything or think they should win every sheep show in the country. And I don't think that I just always, I want to know because going forward, you're probably going to see that judge again. And you want to understand how to hit them or, you know, what you need to haul them. And I think that's a, that's something that, needs to happen more so well and i think judges shouldn't be scared of that easy either because you know sometimes you know we get you know with your when you're out in the ring you get in the mode and it's and if you're not a hundred percent focused or you get distracted by something um and, and i mean i can't lie i mean i'm a i'm a young judge i've been I've been distracted plenty of times in the ring before <laughs> thinking about something else you know between classes and then you get back out there and you gotta gotta reset and maybe you know, every once in a while you just kind of lose step and, and you got to get back in the groove again. But yeah, I'm, I'm with you. Um, I think we can embrace that a little bit too. Uh, Trev, what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I mean, I've been approached a couple times afterwards. Um, and every time you're approached after a show, uh, your natural human instinct is, oh shit. But yeah. I also really appreciate it because they are just like like you said, Justin. They are there to understand why. Rather it be showmanship or the market show. It's actually happened more in showmanship than as market show. Yeah. You know, why'd you put Susie in third? Uh, because everybody else in front of her touched her pig, or, or yeah. whatever the case may be. And 
I, I love explaining my thought because I am very confident in my ability. I try not to sound arrogant, but if I sit there and explain to those families, you know, like, you know, I totally understand where you're coming from and touching your pig and showmanship is not ideal. Ideal, However, it's a balance of positives and those who may have beat her did, although they made one mistake, maybe they did other things a little better and all Susie, she is awesome and I can you know, kind of pump their own kid up. But going back to the show thing, I mean... It's tough for a judge to, you know, with with a parent comes up and say, "Hey, we were third in class five. Uh, why'd you do that?" And then you got to kind of sit back and say, "Okay, that was thirty five classes ago, and yeah. I, I've got to <laughs> I've got to remember what that thing looked like." So that's tough. But if if you sit there and say, "Hey, can you remind me what that one looked like?" I've been judging all day, and typically, if you say, "Yeah, it was a little belted hog," like, "Oh, oh yeah, you know, this one need a, a this, that, and the other thing." Yeah, just be honest with those people. And if you take time to just talk, talk to them, they will just the, the words coming out of your mouth, no matter what it is, as long as it's positive, they're going to appreciate you. At least you took the time to talk to them. I I like that idea. I I do agree. I think it needs to happen more, but it needs to be a positive thing. And the, I don't want everybody who's listening to approach those judges and be like, oh, well, I heard on stock talk, they're going to start asking all the judges, uh, what they did wrong. No, just be like, (laughs) you know, Hey, what, you know, what, what didn't you like? Maybe it wasn't your kind. I'd just like to know to improve the next time. You know, there's nothing wrong with that. Right. And I don't mind, I don't mind the idea of challenging judges either. I mean, Justin, you brought up like the, you got teams coming to work out on sheep and stuff. It's like, you know, every once in a while those coaches need challenge too. like, Hey oh, man, yeah. you gotta, you know, I've, there's been several instances where I've, I've gotten in arguments with coaches cause I felt pretty dang confident with what I was seeing uh, and, and thought that maybe they were a little off. And, you know, some of those conversations ended up being like, man, you're, you're right. You know, I, I, I missed the boat here. I was just being too, too hard on this, you know, one trade or whatever. And, you know, yeah. it happens out there. Um, at the high level, you hope it doesn't happen as often. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's just kind of the reality of where we are. So mm-hmm. that's, oh, yeah. uh, even the committees, like being on a few of them judging contest deals and getting on committees. I mean, that that's been a challenge in itself is when you get on a committee and you have two or three guys want to go one way and, you know, you have a couple guys that are in the industry want to go a certain way and, you know, just, trying to go through that logic sometimes is tough. I mean, it's been a challenge a few times for me on them committees. And it's just like, you know, I, it's not that I ever want to do anything like wrong or right. It's just, you want to make sure that it makes sense and it's logical Mm -hmm. and you know, you don't want to hurt the kids. That's like my number one thing is you don't want to make it so hard that it's going to hurt them individuals where like, you know, when you listen in the reasons rooms, I think that's where you can understand where a kid's, evaluations are when you have logic to it and then they can come in and explain it to you. And, you know, that, that's a challenge sometimes in our industry is, you know, you you get them guys on there and they're like, man, big boned ones in the sheep deal are real cool right now. So we need to get them fuzzy ones to the top of the class when, you know, maybe that thing's deep chested and flat sided, but you know, that's just their mindset sometime, you know, and you know, maybe the frail one that's really good bodied and built, incredibly well is the one we got to run to the top of the class, you know? Right. Um, so I don't know that that's, that's a tough deal. I think on social media, going back to that too, like, uh, you know, having the winners updates on Facebook, like right before the show, like the week before it, I always find so much humor in that, that everybody puts up 
winter, <laughs> winter alert. Yeah. Yeah. In the week before the show, it's just like, guys, come on. Like they probably have already seen the picture on the internet. You don't have to go back and redo it again. So mm-hmm. I don't know that them ads like the week before the show on Facebook and that stuff just kind of, I don't know. I get, I kind of laugh at that, I guess. So, yeah. Well, uh, we're, we're getting close to the end, but, uh, I think I'm going to stick core with the last question, but before I do that, uh, I've got one that I've, uh, when we were, Corey and I were going over this outline, I thought it was uh, a really good topic. You know, there's online sales, there's live sales and SIFs and farm sales and private treaty purchases and all that. But I'm curious to know, how do you market your sheep to get them in the best homes possible? Uh, well, we're equal opportunity here at Nathan Club Lambs. Um, <laughs> uh I mean, we use the internet, obviously, because I work for SE Online Sales. Um, and partly why I've done that is because I can do it one night and I can have it all done. And it it doesn't make them families have to come back five or six different times. Um, you know, we sell all the AI babies one night online, all the flush babies one night online. Huh. And it allows them guys to get here, see them animals, and then go home and get after them. And they don't have to wait for you know, this one to sell in, in Indiana in 60 days. Like they can know that night where they are on everything. Um, and that's why we've went to doing it that way. Um, but I mean, trying to get them in the right home isn't always the easiest thing because sometimes you have budgets to work in. And, you know, for me, that's kind of been a struggle by doing it equal opportunity is some of them sheep haven't been able to go to homes where they needed to go um, just because the finances haven't matched. Um, But, you know, we always keep an open eye out for them families that fall through the cracks and don't get one on a sale that we might go out and try to find them one or work with that family on a later one. Um, It's kind of been the way that we've kind of went at it. I don't know if there is a hundred percent right way to do it because Every year I, I seem frustrated after the sale's over, but at the same time, I guess you, you got to run a business and you got to make, make things cash flow too. Right. Um, so it, it's like, uh, you're kind of in, in that tough spot, if that makes any sense. Oh, but, 100%. Yep. I mean, I think whatever you do, as long as you're fair to everybody and you give everybody that equal chance at a sheep, uh, I think that's, that's one real good things can happen for you when you're selling them. Um, cause I, I mean, I've seen some sheep, they go, went for a lot, a lot of money and, and they kind of probably looked a little bit stupid when it was all over and done with, um, you know, making it maybe too much or whatnot, you know, and yeah. there's gotta be realistics and in, involved in it all. Well, one so. of my favorite phrases comes from, uh, my cousin, Mike McCoy. He's all, he always uh, tells people, I mean, it's not a good sales pitch, but, uh, price only determines ownership. And, and all that means is the highest dollar, the lot one uh, in a live yeah. sale, although it may go for buku bucks, probably doesn't mean it's going to win a show. Um, we all can yeah. hope so when we sell them. We hope those high dollar ones can get it done and they must be worth something. But yeah. there is so much more than just purchasing livestock. Um, yeah. and, and, and if I'm be an advocate of buying high dollar ones and haven't gotten it done with them. I mean, yeah, we, we've showed some real high ones and 
they've they've hit the truck at Denver. I mean, it's right. just the way it goes. <laughs> yeah, you drive home with your tail between your legs. <laughs> yeah. And I, I always get, I mean, I don't want to say nervous, but man, you got so high hopes for those who spend a buku bucks on some livestock. Yeah. You're like, gosh, I need this thing to win. And with all that pressure and excitement behind it, you almost overthink things. I mean, I think if you get oh, back to yeah. simplicity and say, hey, uh, throw it some corn and maybe a little bit of oats and let's let that thing <laughs> grow for a little bit. And that may yep. benefit you in the end, instead of being so nervous and where I'm guilty as charged, I get so nervous yep. and I start changing ounces here and there and Hey, let's do this and change that. You're actually screwing with them a little too much. So, uh, yep. that's just my thoughts though. I, I think it's an interesting topic. Yep. Very much so. All right. Well, uh, Trevor stuck me with the last question. I've done it to him like the last five or six episodes <laughs> in a row. So it's my turn. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, we ask every, every guest, Justin, uh, where do you see the show stock industry in five years? Ooh, that's a tough one. Uh, I mean, I just see it to get more and more competitive. Um, cause I think it's going to be guys are raising these sheep at such a high level, um, that the next year is going to be even tougher you know, you think you raised some good ones this year. The next year, you're going to be have to be twice as hungry to raise that one. And, you know, I think it's keeping a balance of realistic money for what these things are worth and what these show families can do and trying to balance that to keep mm. these guys motivated and hungry to stay active at it. And I think also just making sure that these families all feel like they got a fair shake at mm. every show um, is going to be a huge deal to try and make our industry keep growing. Um, you know, I, I think if there's a new show or, you know, I always think getting more shows that, you know, have a bigger payout and not just paying out grand and reserve, but even like Louisville this year, paying the top five, I think is a huge step for our industry because, you know, now if you were the third best one, at least you walked away with something that right. I mean, there's right. 1300 head there. And so, I mean, I think that's what we got to start doing more of is trying to give more kids uh, a check or not a check or a banner to take home, but trying to award these kids to keep them motivated to keep coming back. And I think as long as we do that as an industry, I think it's just going to keep growing and getting bigger and better. Mm. You bet. Love it. Love it. That's good stuff. Well, Justin, this has been a whole book of knowledge. I I love just chatting. I think this is very conversational things that a lot of people can pick up on. I don't care what your species is. If you're raising rabbits and guinea pigs, I think there's something to take away from here. So we appreciate you uh, taking time out of your day. I know you've got a lot of things to do and uh, more champions to raise. So, hey, thanks for uh, taking time out of your, your schedule to chat with us here at Stock Talk. No, thank you guys for having me on. It was an honor to be on here and listen to it on the road when I'm traveling down there by by myself a bunch. So uh, it's always fun to learn what other guys have uh, for knowledge on the industry because you're never you always got to keep hungry to keep getting better at this deal. So big time, yeah, yeah. We appreciate it, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, we can make a trip out to Nebraska sometime soon and. See yeah. Guys, see what you guys got going on at the place. So that'd be uh, awesome. Man. We'd love yeah. to have you. Cool. Sounds good. Well, it's been a lot of fun. Hope to see you down the road soon. Yep. And uh, Trevor, we'll let you do what you do best. All right. Well, guys, uh, 
again, make sure you reach out to Nathan Club Lambs if you haven't heard during this episode. I think they know what they're doing. So with that being said, folks, we love each and every one of you. Make sure you keep in touch with our social media outlets and hopefully resolve those pet peeves. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat. A lot of good things coming. We are in December now, in the heat of dedicated December. So if you don't know what that is, again, look us up on our social media. Better yet, go to stocktalk-podcast.com and see what we're doing. Thanks, guys. We love you all. I gotta go.